Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is Bookin', brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted independent bookstore. My guest today is Pulitzer Prize-winning author Rick Atkinson. Rick is the author of the Liberation Trilogy about the liberation of Europe in the World War II era, and most recently, the author of The British Are Coming, published by Henry Holt and Company. The British Are Coming is the first volume of the Revolution Trilogy, which takes place here in America in the late 1700s. Rick, welcome to the program. Thanks, Jason. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here. And Rick, I have read your book, which is a marvelous book, and I also listened to your introduction to the audiobook through our sponsors at Libro.fm Audiobooks. And in that introduction, you allude to the author Shelby Foote, who said, A fact becomes truth when you love it. And you say that you believe your strength as a historian relies on your ability to find facts that you love. Can you tell us what you mean? Well, obviously, uh, there are a lot of facts out there in the world, uh, notwithstanding the current debate of whether there really is any truth. Um, and uh, I think that it's necessary, if you want to be a successful narrative writer, that you sort through which uh, facts you use, in addition to uh, marshalling them uh, in a compelling fashion, uh, finding facts that illuminate uh, the action or a personality or some other aspect of your story is pretty critical. It's what nonfiction writers do. And uh, so my uh, my judgment in part in deciding what to include and what to exclude uh, is whether a fact really uh, compels me, whether it really is something that uh, I feel uh, not only helps me to move the story along, but also is something that, that, that captures my imagination. Thank you, Rick. Um, you open this book, The British Are Coming, uh, book one of the Revolutionary Trilogy, by writing about King George III. And King George III seems like someone who loved being British, and especially loved the pageantry of being king and commander of the British royal forces. Is this your impression? Uh, yes, he describes himself as a proud Englishman. The, the two Georges before him, his uh, great-grandfather, George I, and his grandfather, George II, uh, both had been born in Germany. Both were uh, at least as German as they were British, uh, more so in the case of George I. And uh, George III, who became king in 1760 at the age of 22, uh, really reveled in, in being an Englishman. Uh, he saw himself as the uh, as John Bull, the, the, the embodiment of the British people. And, um, uh, yes, I, he liked the pageantry, but I don't think it's because he was vain about it, particularly. Uh, I think he saw it as part and parcel of the, the, uh, the monarchy and the traditions of monarchy, uh, which was part of the British government. Uh, he was not an absolute monarch. He was a... Uh, uh, a king who was constrained as a consequence of uh, political upheavals in the 17th century to uh, cooperate with both houses of parliament, uh, the House of Lords and the House of Commons, and also with his, uh, with his cabinet, with his ministers. So um, he loved that part of being British, the fact that there was a constitutional monarchy and that he uh, had a role, a big role, to play in that, but not the only role. So um, I, I think he's actually quite admirable in that regard. Thank you, Rick. 
Um, there are a couple of points in this interview where I'm going to attempt to draw parallels between the politics of the 1770s and the politics of today. Uh, for example, in your book, you highlight a British officer who says the goal of the British military, the Redcoats, in America was to capture hearts and subdue minds. I feel like you could say the same thing about a politician in 2019 preparing for a town hall on television. Um, can you elaborate a little bit on what this British officer meant? Yeah, that's uh, General Henry Clinton, who um, is the number two in command. He's actually the longest-serving general for the British in the entire Revolutionary War, and for four of the years he will be the commander-in-chief. Uh, he had grown up in uh, New York in part because his father was the royal governor of New York at one time. Um, and he talks about the, the counterinsurgency imperative to uh to to uh, capture hearts and minds it's a phrase that we usually think of related to vietnam uh, but it's actually uh, apropos of any uh, counterinsurgency effort i don't really see it as uh parallel to today's politics i, I don't see politicians trying to subdue minds it's a pretty difficult thing to do in a country of 324 million people um i think that it actually is more germane in thinking about uh, the kinds of counterinsurgency warfare that we have waged repeatedly uh, in Vietnam, in, in Iraq, for example, in Afghanistan. Uh, General David Petraeus, whom I know well, was with him in Iraq in 2003, and uh, of course he was the commander in Iraq, commander in Afghanistan. And he talks about the human terrain as critical when you're waging a counterinsurgency. And that's what this addresses, really, is how you uh, how you win hearts and uh, subdue rebellious minds or insurrectionary minds. Uh, and I think that that uh, insight by by General Clinton uh, 240 years ago is uh, is certainly very relevant to uh, the kinds of wars that we've often fought uh, in the 20th and 21st centuries. Thank you so much, Rick. Um, I would like to set a scene, and by doing so, I want to talk about the issue of neglect. Uh, it's the early, mid-1770s, and most Brits during this time, especially those in positions of power, had no idea what was going on in colonial America, even down to the geography of the land, such as which parts of which colonies might contain a river. Uh, while the British were fostering this ignorance of their colony, you might say, uh, the citizens of America were growing more educated, more enlightened, and better armed. Can you talk about this dynamic and how it set up the impending American Revolution? Well, the, you know, the British have been operating in North American waters um, f for a long time. They've been here really since the beginning of the 16th century. Uh, at the beginning of the 17th century, and the uh, uh, knowledge that they've got of what would become the English colonies in America and the sugar colonies they've got in the West Indies, and eventually after the Seven Years' War or the French and Indian War, they will own Canada, they will own a huge chunk of, of, uh, of America west of the Appalachian Mountains, so they've got some knowledge of the terrain and the peoples and uh, uh, the geography, but um, you have to say that you know they're more ignorant than not in a lot of ways. There are colonial governors; they are reporting back to London, to the British government uh, about 
what's going on in their respective colonies. But the king is never, never has traveled outside of England and never will in his long life. Uh, none of his ministers have been to America. And so there's a lot that they don't know. They don't know the, the temper of the people, I would say, in general. They assume that loyalism, loyalty to the crown is much deeper and wider than it actually is. Um, and um, so they operate on a number of strategic misconceptions uh, because of their fundamental ignorance about some things. They have there's been a benign neglect that the British have uh, have uh, embraced toward the colonies for about 150 years, and that begins to go away when they begin to try to impose taxes on the colonists in the 1760s. They leave British regiments here after what we call the French and Indian War was over so that there is a, a British occupation force in America. And all of this rankles, all of this causes political frictions and so on. Uh, and as all, all of the, the developments are happening over the course of decades, uh, the, you know, the Americans have grown accustomed to governing themselves. Uh, they are uh, quite literate. There's a higher rate of literacy in America than there is in England. Um, the, the colonies are pretty sophisticated in some ways, even though the towns are small and the, the, uh, the people are largely living in, in uh, rural areas as farmers and small shopkeepers and so on. Uh, so all of this, you know, is two peoples who've kind of gone on divergent paths, and those paths are going to lead them away from each other, as it turns out. Thank you so much, Rick. Uh, we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Rick Atkinson. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Pulitzer Prize-winning author Rick Atkinson, author of The British Are Coming, published by the fine folks at Henry Holt and Company. Rick, the war, uh, the Revolutionary War as we know it, started with a skirmish at Lexington and then a fight at Concord in Massachusetts. And I want to talk about the folly of these uh, fights. In order for things to work out like they did in Lexington, almost everything had to go wrong, did it not? Uh, well, everything went wrong for the colonists. There's no doubt about that. It's not really even a fight. It's not a skirmish. It's more of an execution. Uh, it's a very small band that has turned out to... Uh, face the British uh, when reports come that a British column is marching from Boston, heading toward Concord, trying to seize some cannon and other munitions that they know to be in Concord, and uh, the band gets even smaller when the British don't turn up, turn up in the middle of the night on April 19th, 1775, and then when they're finally spotted and they're approaching Lexington, uh, you know, a small number of uh, 
of men uh, are out there facing a large number of men, and a shot is fired. No one knows who fired that shot, uh, but it triggers uh, a uh, um, it triggers a massacre. The British open fire. They kill eight colonists. They wound ten others. Uh, the colonists actually have turned and are leaving the green at Lexington. They have obeyed their commander, who in turn has obeyed orders from the British commander to disperse. They're dismersing when the shot goes off, and then this fusillade uh, mows them down. So, yeah, I think you can say pretty much everything went wrong for uh, for the Americans uh, in that that hour that uh, just after dawn on on uh, the 19th of April. And speaking of um, folly, Rick, let's talk about booze. Uh, the British seem to think that it would be a great idea to keep their troops drunk. Can you talk about the role of alcohol during this time? Yeah, they're not uh, looking to keep them drunk per se, but there is an entitlement that develops uh, over time of uh, of uh, a gill of rum, gill uh, is G-I-L-L, and it's about five ounces, a gill of rum per soldier per day. It's about a gallon a month, and uh, it does lead to some severe disciplinary problems and alcoholism. Uh, uh, you know, the intent is to keep the soldiers sedated, uh, rum, and other spirits, uh, in some cases for both sides, substitute for water, water since uh, potable water is hard to come by in the, in the 18th century. Um, it also causes great problems for the British just in terms of shipping space, trying to bring all that rum, most of it from Antigua and other islands in, in the West Indies, uh, requires a lot of shipping. And shipping is difficult enough as it is, bringing over fresh provisions and meat and things like that uh, for the British, as well as clothing and, and uh, gunpowder and everything else that you need to wage an expeditionary war. So uh, alcoholism contributes to disciplinary problems. There's a lot of, uh, of desertion, uh, both from the British Army and then especially from the, from the Royal Navy. Uh, and, um, you know, as is in every army, when you've got soldiers who've uh, had too much to drink, they get into fights, and uh, there are other issues that, uh, that militate against good order and discipline. So, um, you know, this is all part and parcel of the landscape of, of, of 18th century uh, soldiering. Right. Thanks, Rick. Um, I want to move on to talk about taxes for a moment. Most people, I hope, know about the Boston Tea Party and know the phrase no taxation without representation. But the fact is that the colonists in America were paying much less tax than the mainland British. One to 50 was the quotas, uh, the quoted ratio, I believe. And yet they got very upset, uh, the Americans, at taxes levied on tea and paper. Am I understanding the situation correctly? Yeah, there were taxes imposed uh, by the British uh, beginning in the mid-1760s partly to help defray the cost of uh, waging the war, the successful war that Britain fought against France and Spain in uh, the Seven Years' War. Uh, it left them really strapped for cash, and they figured that the colonists who had benefited from British success in defeating the French threat from Canada and uh, keeping the Indians at bay on the frontier uh, ought to mean that the colonists should pay something for it. And in fact, the amount of money that they were being asked to pay was a pittance compared to what um, many uh, British citizens were paying. But uh, the Americans rejected it. They felt strongly they'd not been taxed before. They had no voice in this. They believed that their own colonial assembl assemblies, their, their self-governance mechanisms, 
uh, were every bit as legitimate as Parliament. They had no voice in Parliament. They had no re elected uh, representatives. So the British uh, abolished the taxes uh, after protests and, and uh, uh, boycotts by Americans that were pretty effective and left only a small tax on tea. That was to establish the fact that Parliament had the right to tax colonists. It was more uh, symbolic than anything else. And they rejected that, and they threw the tea famously uh, from, from a large shipment uh, coming into Boston Harbor into the water uh, uh, to sh voice their displeasure. That was in December 1773, and, and that really accelerated events. The uh, British government, the king included, were furious at this uh, act of insubordination and destruction of property. They uh, ordered the Bo Port of Boston closed and other punitive measures. Uh, and so what we see here is a, is a, is a spiraling cycle that uh, is going to lead to gunplay in April 1775. Thank you, Rick. Uh, coming back um, to political themes over time for a moment, there was a sermon in Boston that you referred to in part two of your book that sought to prove theologically that Satan was a Tory. Uh, Rick, how does one prove such a thing theologically? Uh, well, you don't, obviously. <laughs> you know, I think uh, uh, it just shows that there was some silliness all around. Um, the, the frictions between rebels uh, and uh, loyalists uh, were intense. Uh, the American Revolution was our first civil war, and it really did foreshadow the civil war of the 19th century. Um, loyalists, probably about 20%, maybe one in five of the two million white Americans in the 13 colonies, uh, were often treated dreadfully by rebels. Uh, they were subject to having their property confiscated, to... Uh, to um, uh, jailing uh, in miserable conditions, exile, uh, and uh, there were pitched battles, uh, armed battles, because there were loyalist military units that were formed. Um, so the idea that you could discern theologically a uh, a, a Tory or that uh, you could prove that Satan believed in Tory principles was is nonsense, of course, but it does go to the Part of the matter, which is the depth of feeling between the two sides. John Adams said, I would have hanged my own brother had he taken part with our enemies in the conflict. And that gives you some sense of how people felt about it. It does. Thank you, Rick. Um, finally, I want to mention some aspects of day-to-day -day life at the time that you describe with such precision and extraordinary detail in your book. Uh, besides the revolution, there was another deadly issue facing people in America at the time, and that was the issue of disease, specifically of smallpox. And besides disease, you had violent death everywhere you turned, not because of battle, but because of crime and public execution. These are things that folks saw in their day-to-day -day lives, but uh, what they did not see was George Washington. Uh, most people in America, and even most people under his command, had no idea what George Washington looked like, which is hard to imagine for those of us living today who see his likeness probably multiple times every day in our waking hours. Um, George Washington, even at the time, was described as an almost mythical, platonic man in some respects, but he also owned many slaves and ordered many floggings fairly regularly. Uh, can you talk to us about some of these 
darker aspects of day-to-day life during this colonial era, both for the regular citizenry and for folks like George Washington? Um, yeah, I mean, disease was um, a terrible everyday fact of life in the 18th century because 18th century medicine is hardly worthy of the name. Uh, the disease germ theory was not understood. Uh, there were a lot of misconceptions about what caused uh, disease and how to ameliorate it. Um, smallpox was uh, particularly notorious. There were 100,000 smallpox deaths in North America from 1775 to 1782. It's a terrible way to die. It's known as the king of terrors. George Washington, in fact, had smallpox as a young man on a visit to Barbados once. It left him with the small smallpox pits on his face. Um, uh, the good thing about having smallpox, if you survive it, is that you are forever immune to it, and uh, that was uh, highly prized in the Continental Army uh, if you were a soldier in Listy and you'd had smallpox. And there are plenty of other diseases, too, that were awful, typhus, dysentery. It's a long list, a long, deadly list. Um, and, uh, you know, for for uh, for somebody like Washington, uh, life is different than it is for the average um Soldier or the average citizen, he had when he died in 1799 at Mount Vernon, uh, 300 slaves, more than 300 slaves. Uh, when he went off to war in 1775, he had lots of slaves. He had overseers to take care of his plantation for him while he was gone for eight years, as it turned out. He went back to Mount Vernon only once briefly during those eight years. Um, and, um, so, uh, you know, when you're a man of affluence, he had married the richest widow in Virginia, Martha Dandridge Custis. Uh, uh, so he, his affluence increased substantially with marriage. Um, your life is going to be different than some guy who's trying to make uh, a living as a saddle maker in rural Massachusetts. And um, it took him a while to understand the sacrifices that those individuals who were coming to join his army uh, from all the colonies eventually, were making in order to to take part in the cause. And uh, that's part of what we see in in George Washington's growth over time. He's uh, uh, he's not, you know, particularly skilled as a a field marshal. Um, He'd had five years in the Virginia militia, eventually as a colonel, but he's been out of uniform for 17 years when he takes over the Continental Army in the summer of 1775. And there's just a lot he doesn't know. And there's a lot he, he has to learn about uh, running the Continental Army and, and conducting a Continental War. So uh, I find him just a fascinating uh, study in character and in personal growth. Because uh, one thing we can say about him is that great responsibility does enlarge him. He he grows into the the job and into the challenge, uh, and he's a fascinating character. We you know see him as embalmed in reverence. He's on our dollar bill. Um, he tends to be in marble, but he's a lot more interesting and a lot more complex, a lot more nuanced than that. He's he's capable, despite the stereotype of him of lying. Um, he's capable of, of, of bad temper. He's, he's capable of a, a lot of human traits. And um, one of the things that I've enjoyed in writing about uh, these first couple of years of the revolution is teasing out the, the human dimensions of, of Washington. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much, Rick. Listeners, this really is a fantastic book. I cannot recommend it highly enough, and I am very much looking forward to the next two volumes. I've been speaking with Pulitzer Prize winner Rick Atkinson, author of The British Are Coming, Volume 1 of the Revolution Trilogy, published by Henry Holt and Company. Rick, thank you for joining me. Thanks very much, Jason. I've enjoyed it. Once again, I would like to thank Rick Atkinson for joining me. Signed copies of The British Are Coming can be purchased in-store and online at www.quailridgebooks.com while supplies last. If you're a writer who wants to explore your craft, receive feedback on your work, and make new writing friends without the pressure and expectations of a university writing program, then check out the Redbud Writing Project. This new school offers in-person classes and workshops in short story writing, novel writing, memoir, submitting, publishing, and more at community locations in Raleigh, Durham, and Chapel Hill. Visit redbudwriting.org to learn more and sign up. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.